Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Margot Seibert is yet another multi-talented woman, singer-songwriter, actress, activist. Let's begin with the theatrical. Margot began her acting career in Washington, D.C., appearing in both plays and musicals. There was also work in Chicago at the Goodman Theater, which was followed by a move to New York in 2010, where her multifaceted career has taken off. Perhaps best known for her critically acclaimed performance as Adrian in the Broadway musical Rocky, Margot also originated the role of Jane in Broadway's first a cappella musical in transit and co-starred in the world premiere of the Thanksgiving play. From theater to television, she's been on Boardwalk Empire, Elementary, Instinct, and The Good Cop. There's her debut solo album, 77th Street. It features Margot's original songs that incorporate eclectic rock and folk influences, as well as reimagined pop and theater classics. Last but not least is her activism. Margot is the co-founder of Racket, an initiative that aims to reduce the stigma and shame that surround... Believe it or not, menstruation. We will definitely talk about that. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's meet and get to know Margot Seibert. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Where to begin? Did you always sing around the house? Oh, absolutely. I'm one of five siblings, so I spent the majority of my time bossing them around, making them reenacting Annie. The musical. Boy, have I heard oh, that a lot from right. from just, women and just said, you're going to play. <laughs> you're going to play this. This is what you're going to say. You're going to sit over there. Where were you in the food chain of the five? Um, I, I'm i the oldest. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. So that gave you street cred. Yeah. To right. boss people. <laughs> but putting on Annie doesn't necessarily mean you had any talent. That's very true. That's very true. Well, we grew up watching a lot of movie musicals, and I think uh, I just tried to emulate what I heard. And I was, my father uh, plays the saxophone, was always very musical. We always had music on in the house. So I started playing the clarinet because they wouldn't let me play the saxophone. You would try it out for the school plays? Yes. My second grade teacher tells me when I, I run into her at my aunt's hair salon, mm-hmm. she told me that she, I didn't speak really until we had auditions for The Lion and the Mouse. And then once we had auditions and I booked the mouse, the jazz singing mouse. Well, wait a minute that you didn't speak. And what I mean like, by that was, were you shy? I was very shy, very really? quiet. In, yeah. But I don't, so inside the comfort of your house, you were bossing yeah, your siblings oh, yeah. around. But outside, just, you know, taking it all in. Mm-hmm. And then apparently I blossomed in second grade. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty young. That's not so bad. So did you decide when it was time to apply to college, that that was what you wanted to pursue, an acting career, a musical career? I always wanted to do acting and music, but I would say that I'm one of the first in my family to go to college. And I think it was, my parents were nervous, for sure, about getting a degree in musical theater or theater or music. What if that didn't go well? Well, of course, sure. So I actually studied international business. Instead, mm-hmm. uh, I went to American University in Washington. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so it wasn't too far, and they gave me money, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I could still pursue music and perform in the plays there and get a degree. So, what happened to you when you graduated? I was already working in Washington, D.C. before I graduated. I was already understudying shows and in in the the theater community there. Mm-hmm. So, as soon as I graduated, I, I, I was like, well, I never really found anything that I was going to apply for within the international... Right, and I'm using the term in quotes, a real job. 
Right. Uh-huh. uh-huh. A real job. Yeah, I had plenty of jobs, mm. plenty of side jobs. Sure, sure. Um, the D.C. community is just so welcoming and wonderful. So, And I would imagine much more doable than going to Broadway. Yes. Mm-hmm. I never really had it in—other people told me I was going to— be on Broadway. I was like, okay, that's really sweet. It's just like a really nice compliment. And uh, but I didn't really have the confidence yet, and I didn't know if I could afford it. I didn't like what? What would I? Yeah, move really. To New York. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. So DC was more doable, and DC. You uh, cut your teeth there. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And I was able to move back and forth from doing some children's theater to then doing a serious play to then doing a musical, and they don't blink twice at it. You know, here in New York, it's much harder. Did you have an agent back then? No. So no. You, so you, all you did was go out on auditions. I went on auditions, uh-huh. and then the network of and the family there is pretty tight. And mm-hmm. so, you know, somebody would use you in something, and then you'd audition for them again, and they'd say, oh, yeah, okay. A lot of people there, like, helped me prep audition material. People I was in shows with helped me get my next show. You were mentored. Yes, yes, 100%. Which that was where really my great. theater training was. Mm-hmm. It was in working and people saying, yeah, I'm not. I'm not threatened by you. I'll help you. You, not too long after that, wound up performing in a play in Chicago. Um, yes, I'm so bad with dates. I it was. Uh, I think 2008, 2009. I was in Mary Zimmerman's reimagined Candide that was in D.C. and Chicago. Was that the first time that you left home? To work? I believe I had done a little bit of regional work um, from D.C. in Red Bank, New Jersey. Oh, sure. To River mm-hmm. Theater. But yes, that was a that was a very, that was a big contract for me. That Did you have an agent? That got me an agent. So that gave you the bigger street cred, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Okay. Did you always have somewhere in the back of your mind that you had to come here? No. I was, it, it's too scary here. <laughs> And that you was it one of those things where you were thinking to yourself, "I'm not worthy." I was thinking, my family's absolutely wonderful, but we don't have like, I'm, my parents aren't going to support me if it doesn't work out. Well, so you, you know, was, you can always waitress, right? Right, <laughs> which I have spent my time doing as well, mm-hmm. and a lot of nannying, a lot of babysitting. But I felt like I don't know if I can cut it. I mm-hmm. think that's definitely a part. I would take bus trips up from Washington, D.C. to do cattle call auditions up here. Okay. Just to try to get a sense. Before I moved here, I wanted to know where I would live. Who would my agent be? How would I afford living A lot here? of practical stuff. A lot know. of practical mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mom. And so I would come up here and be typed out too short. Too oh, typed out typed as opposed out. to typed in. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Like, like uh-huh. thank you, thank you, thank you. We're only keeping number one and number 26. Thank you so much. And so you just figured this was just not going to happen. Yeah, and it wasn't until— And you were okay with that? I think I was. I mean, I, I didn't really know what the next— It Maybe was—there's so much incredible regional theater happening out there. Maybe I would go to Chicago. You know, maybe I would stay in D.C. Maybe—L.A. was never really my, my jam. But I'll go there and work if anyone has it. <laughs> It wasn't until I, I was in D.C. and I had like a pretty – I was proud of my resume. I had some musicals. I had some new work. I felt pretty confident and I was able to secure that agent through the production at The Goodman that I went, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And at that point also I had a network of friends who had already moved up here. But you still came here cold. 
Yes. Once I I knew that I was going to be moving in with one of my best friends. We had a railroad style apartment. Mm-hmm. I lived in the dining room. You know how mm-hmm. it goes. And it was I could I could af- afford that. I, I felt like I had okay at least like a little some roots. You know. Did you find work fairly quickly? Did you do a ton of auditioning? I think this happens to a lot of folks. They move here. And this is what you had mentioned to me before 2010. 2010. Okay, so that's eight years ago. 2010. So, you know, I think a lot of people, when they move here, they immediately get work out of town. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. You what did you do? Go back to DC. Yeah, go back. Go go do a show in DC again, and you know, go do a show in Vermont over the summer, mm-hmm. Weston Playhouse, and just do summer like, stock. Summer stock. Mm-hmm. Um, go back to Jersey. Go to you know to to uh, to River, and was just kind of <laughs> hopping around until you're able to do. It feels to me like enough enough auditioning that the casting directors know who you are, right, and that they want to bring you back. I started doing a lot of uh, readings of new musicals at NYU Graduate Music Theater Writing Program. Mm -hmm. So the graduate students need people to jump up and be able to learn their music very swiftly and and work with them. So then you just start. It's like network by network. Right. Network by network. Getting yourself out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You might not want to answer this, but I'll ask it anyway. So how old are you? I'm 34. All right. So in my book, you're young. Thank you. And... (laughs) When you look at you at 34 uh-huh. and go backwards, it's a pretty rich history, isn't it? Thanks. Yeah. Well, it's not thanks. I mean, do you agree <laughs> with that? I do. I do. I do. I want to do. I want to do everything. So, was the big seminal moment for you being cast in the musical Rocky? Yeah. Well, here? that was tremendous. So, there were a couple of. Um, converging events that happened at the same at the, around the same time. Oddly, you know, we're talking about all these networks. Okay, so you go in for this person and the casting director brings you in because they liked you for this thing. And, and with Rocky, I didn't know anyone on the creative team, which is kind of, it's, it's not the usual. And it's, give us the year again for that. Um, this was auditioning in 2012 and it began in 2013. So it's two yeah. years after yeah. You moved here. Yes, All right. yes, yes. Just for context. Yes, absolutely. And so I that's kind of unheard of to be able to book a leading role in a Broadway show without knowing anyone. Which was kind no of No connection. No connection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that it happened because earlier in two thousand and twelve, one of my younger sisters died very suddenly in a car crash. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had to take a big step back. I My bank account went down to $26. I left the city. I wasn't functioning very well. And I had this, like, depth of sadness, really? <laughs> which in many ways I'm very gr- grateful and happy that I took the time to grieve, mm-hmm. you know. And I had such a wonderful support system. But Rocky was one of the first auditions back for me. Ah, when you returned to New yeah. York. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all kind of rolled our eyes at the idea of turning Rocky uh, into a musical. But Adrian, being so kind of closed off and and sh- shy, oh, I hate that term, but, you know, just like just low self-esteem and and like a wealth of sadness you know, singing this. So the stars, in a way, were in a. Unfortunately, in terms of your personal tragedy, yeah, very aligned. Absolutely. For you. And I had to. And it was the one of the moments in my life where I surrendered. Really, 
I mean, and I think that surrender gets a bad, you know, um, I don't know, can have a negative connotation. Like you're not doing enough. You know, mm-hmm. you're not working through it. You're not struggling. But I really couldn't do anything but surrender in that moment. And I remember every time I went in for my auditions, I went, let me be the best Adrian that I can be for all the Adrians out there. Like if that can just be it. Because mm-hmm. you can also get trapped in the fact that you're going in f- for a giant musical you, I went in nine times. I was just going to ask you, how many callbacks did it you was, have? All in all, I went in nine times, sometimes for a music work session, and then I would have another audition. More people in the room, cameras. We're doing this one for Sylvester Stallone, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So um, that can really... Th- unnerve you. Unnerve you. That's uh-huh. the perfect word. Do you feel that they weren't sure if they wanted to take a risk by yeah, hiring absolutely. You? Absolutely. I think that without coming in with a bunch of contacts and like, you know, a, a track record for them so they could call someone and say, how was she, you know, to work with? Um, I think they kept going like, OK, let's have her come in again and try that one more time. Sure. And I've heard over the years, you know, some people were definites and some people were like, well, I'm not, sh- you know, but who is she? Yeah, based so, on, a, on an unknown. You yeah. Wanna, you, want, you want an unknown to become a known, you know, a known quantity. Right. So you get the role. Yes. And that completely blew you away, I assume. Yes, I was babysitting at the time <laughs> that I received the call. I had just put the baby down to bed. I was just going to say, and so what did you do? Get stuck waking up an 18-month-old no, and I, saying you're not going to believe this? <laughs> I was like, I, so my director, Alex Timbers, who gave me, like, my chance— mm-hmm. Took the risk. He called me just to let me know that the offer would be coming. And I just, you know, internally screamed and shouted for joy. It was not, I wasn't going to wake the baby up. I had this image of <laughs> sort of saying, you're sleeping. I'm going to leave. You know, because, I have to I, go I, now. Yeah, because I've, I've just got a lot to, <laughs> to do. The people you know. I, I babysit for, they said, um, they actually have a, it, it's a pattern for them that if you babysit for them, you'll get. A Broadway show that keep losing their babysitters. <laughs> oh, gee, it's all about them, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so yeah, that really changed everything. It was a, you know, people in it's people in it's millions of dollars on the line, you know, for these productions, these yes, productions, for sure. And that first day, seeing the design presentations and what what Alex and uh, and what they had planned, I like went to the bathroom and locked myself in a stall and cried. Mm-hmm. Because I was just so overwhelmed right. to be a part of it. And almost sort of thinking, I'm not worthy. Oh, I my bet. God. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's it's funny. So yesterday I was – you we were talking about the unworthiness. I was at the memorial service for Tom Meehan, who was the book writer for Rocky, uh-huh. who wrote Annie, right, Spray, right. The, the producers. Okay. <laughs> and he, alongside um, Aaron's and Flaherty, like they allowed me – in the room to ask questions and to hear me out mm-hmm. and to actually legitimize. I'm saying, you know, we think Adrian's doing this, but then she says this, and I'm kind of confused as to Oh, I see, in terms of in trying terms of, to wrap your head around the role in yes. a way. Mm-hmm. And, and So they respected and your— And Tom Meehan was like, that's a great point. Mm. Let me take that home tonight and let me come up with something better. Wow. wow. And that was a huge— that, that you, kind of they gave everything. you a voice, right. literally and figuratively. A voice. They mm-hmm. gave me a voice. And that, that also is the journey of Adrian in that show, is that she earns this giant number at the end where she finally gets to speak her mind. So that was, it was really huge. So how long was the run? The run was about six months, mm-hmm. which is pretty good for a Broadway show. 
And I'm also very grateful. I didn't know anything about the box office grosses. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to forecast it. I didn't know how long. I was just You just in showed it. up every day. I was day. just in it. Right. And I was loving it. Oh, well, that's the best. Yeah, yeah right. That's the best. <laughs> yeah. So what happened after that? Because that clearly was huge. Yeah. What happens after that, which I don't think that people often think about, is that um, no one cares that you just did this big thing and you don't have your... Start from ground zero. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's all wiped out. I mean, yes, it's on your resume. It doesn't mean that it doesn't, didn't exist. Like, And you have a family. But you take the subway like everybody else <laughs> the next day. No special perks. No one, no, no movie stars are coming backstage, you know, and you don't have a paycheck anymore. Mm. You go on unemployment and you start, like you said, you start back up and you start auditioning. Yeah. Uh, So it was, I had to take a little momentary break from the city and just kind of put myself back together and then get back into it. And large stretches of time will pass before a gig will work out. Was your focus solely on the theatrical or by virtue of the fact that you also sing, did you try to do something at 54 Below or whatever? Yeah. I mean, often I'm singing as part of other people's concerts. That was vi- that happened very often, like at 54 Below or at Birdland, you know, an evening of we celebrate this writer or Oh, that kind okay. Of We're singing Sondheim. Right. And, right. Exactly. And you're one of a group of people who yes, are performing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And a lot a lot of readings and a, a, um, a lot of workshopping new musicals and babysitting mostly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. auditioning. My music didn't really come until the last for the last two years or so. So at that point, I wasn't writing. So it did kind of even out for you. I went and did a brand new musical at Paper Mill Playhouse. In New Jersey. In New Jersey. And that was that's where I met my husband. So it all... And Paper Mill out. Playhouse is not small potatoes. No. You no, know. we did a we did a, ho- a hopefully bound for Broadway production of Ever After, which was a, a movie from the 90s. And it was wonderful. So yes, the Broadway ended. I took a hot second mm-hmm. to get myself together. And then you go back into it. So I mentioned that you had some roles in television. Was film ever a dream of yours? It's very interesting. I always have felt at home on stage. But I also feel like with television and film work, it's just a skill that I hadn't... Um, cultivated? Yeah, cultivated. Or I hadn't really been exposed to it, mm-hmm. you know? Rural Maryland to D.C. to here. I did a few instructional videos for the military mm-hmm. when I was in D.C. But really, I just hadn't had a chance to even try. So over the last few years, I've gotten much more of a, a chance to be on set. And that's really fun, but it's just a completely different world. And I'm so not used to being able to have an eight show week to mm-hmm. try, oh, oh, you mean we only get to do this scene right now today? Sure. And, and then and, and that's it. Let's move over to your debut solo album, 77th Street. First of all, is that where you live? <laughs> that was that was my first apartment in New York. That railroad I mentioned was on East 77th Street between First and York. Mm-hmm. And so this is homage. <laughs> it's homage to. So the idea, the album came to me in thematically. So I was thinking about these in-between times, these chunks where you're hoping that your unemployment doesn't run out and you're putting together a bunch of odd jobs mm-hmm. and you're going, what is it going to be and when is it going to be and mm-hmm. how long can I handle this not knowing? Which is specific to 
theater and in this profession, but not. Like, I think humans, we feel better knowing what's next, right? We don't feel great about the unknown. And to me, I wanted to kind of encapsulate that musically. I wanted to pay respect to that. I really need to make a huge decision in my life, but I like that uneasy feeling. When am I going to break up with this person? Or I'm anticipating the birth of my child or like these kind of like these seminal moments. Yeah. Yeah. That inform our entire lives, that that grieving and not wanting to feel that Mm -hmm. or be in that. But because of that, able being able to move on so beautifully. So, so did the songs pour out of you? I had been kind of squirreling away melodies, lyrics like in my phone, like mm-hmm. voice full of voice memos. But I had never thought of myself as a writer because also a funny thing that we do, we go like, well, I'm only this, right? Or I only have training in this, so mm-hmm. I'm this. Or I don't have training and I'm only this. I don't believe that I'm a writer, so other people won't believe that I'm a writer. And my um, drummer, Michael Kreuter, who's the producer of this of this record, um, on his label, he was like, if you're writing music, people really want to hear that. Please finish the songs. I think at least half of the album should be your own music. And I was like, okay, all right. And then I, I continued to work on, so there's about five or six songs on this album that are my own. And it's the first time that those have gone out into the world. So it's a mix. It's a mix. It's mm-hmm. half covers, um, songs that I either grew up listening to, always loved, mm. Tears for Fears, Doobie Brothers. I have a little bit of Something's Coming from West Side Story. I mean, I grew up listening to everything. And so it was very hard for me to say, I, you know, I've never really been like, okay, I'm going to do, you know, Margot sings uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Right, right. I, it just didn't feel authentic to me because that's not how I came into this career. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to also kind of throw in everything and that I love musically and also have hopefully a, a through line that has um, kind of a reimagined – there's some electric elements. There's v- vocal looping to kind of give a through line musically. To, to And how has this been received? Very well so far. I mean, I <laughs> – I don't I'm new to putting music out into the world and and some people do that all the time and I commend them because it's like birthing mm-hmm. a child and the producing and coming up with the funds and So you wrote the music and lyrics yes. your own personal I mean songs. I give my band a huge amount of credit because I don't play an instrument mm-hmm. So when I'm writing I have GarageBand open and I am recording I'm basically making an acapella track. I'm humming something that I think is the bass line. I'm layering that with my vocals. Then I'm I'm beatboxing very poorly, and then that's maybe the drum line. And I take this recording of a song that I made, and I take it to the band, and I go, does this make any sense to anyone? I want to pick up on something. What do you Please. mean by my band? Did you have a lot of singing gigs, and did you work with the same group of musicians? So, no, I did not have a ton. I had a ton of singing gigs, but again, it's these kind of like one-off concerts mm-hmm. for the most part. But then you start to have relationships. You meet with people. These, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes for doing doing these Broadway shows and meeting the pit and hanging out down there and right. seeing the orchestra and like understanding, you know, what their lives are like. And I actually met my bass player on Rocky. 
And I met Michael Kreuter, my drummer, through another show. And then my my guitarist, I saw do another show. And I was like, oh, he's fantastic. And Ted Firth, who is my amazing MD and one of the best like jazz pianists I've ever encountered. He and I did a a private party gig together. Mm -hmm. So it's really hodgepodge. But then I assembled these guys together, and we are the ones. I call them my band. We're running out of time, and I'm very conflicted because we haven't talked about this organization that you founded called Racket. What the hell? Yeah, what the hell? Spark this. Okay, so I'll, in a nutshell, 2015... In between work, I was volunteering a lot because I an, another way to get myself outside of like this audition grind. I was volunteering every Wednesday at a Upper East Side dinner for the homeless. An article came out in the Huffington Post about what it means to have your period when you're living on the streets. And I had never thought about that because I have privilege and I can purchase the products that I need. And so my one of my best friends and I, we were like, okay, let's figure out if there's a place in New York City where we can volunteer or something for this cause. Like there must be some place or at least give them product or do something. And we started talking to some of the women in this dinner that we were volunteering at, asking them, what's your experience, you know, when you have been in shelters? And they're like, oh, you can't find, you cannot find anything that you need. Mm. It's not a particularly safe environment. If you're in a family shelter, there aren't there there aren't products. Well, that's probably the least thing on, the, you know. Yes. on the list. Right, exactly. And it also depends on who's making the list and like, right. you know. So, and they're not often products on a church pantry list. So, we went to see where can we volunteer, couldn't find anywhere. Couldn't find like anyone who's doing this kind of work in New York City. So you took matters into your own hands. So we took matters into our own hands and we decided to start this initiative to raise a racket to make noise about period shame, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's insane that it's even a thing. Yeah, this is something as a woman. It's just like I take for granted on some level. Right. And, and that lo- you don't broadcast necessarily. Right, that you don't broadcast and mm-hmm. that – and I'm not even saying that you should broadcast it. But in order to normalize it, we at least have to talk about it. So we started doing these kind of one-off drives and saying, OK, what our big push is, we want to partner with an organization, Covenant House, New York Rescue Mission, Hetrick Martin, Ali Fournay, figure out exactly what products they're lacking and needing. And ask them, you know, some people won't take tampons because they can't give them away culturally. Like these these menstruators don't want to use tampons. Or this is our trans community or a non-binary mm-hmm. community and they prefer this and they don't want a bunch of female packaging mm-hmm. on it. So we've learned a lot. We partner with them, figure out what they want, and then we urge people to purchase the product versus throwing money our way for us to purchase. Purchase the product so you are going in. And you are seeing the prices. And this was also uh-huh. during a time when there was still a tax in New York State on um, menstrual hygiene products. There was a tampon tax uh, in 2015. So we also were saying, OK, and look at the tax that you're paying on that. Rogaine isn't taxed. Viagra isn't taxed. Mm-hmm. But menstrual hygiene products are. Mm-hmm. And we help raise awareness. We usually – we partner with organizations. A lot of times we, we do an annual Broadway drive where we get, you know – 15, 18 Broadway shows collecting, putting social media out there. Uh And we were able to provide Covenant House last year with 
over 20,000 products, which was what they needed for the year. Wow. So that, you know, and we make kits so that you can throw them in your backpack if you don't have housing. And we were part of a class action lawsuit to sue the state of New York for the the Department of Taxation and Finance for that tampon tax. And about a, a few months later... Gone? Gone. You know, I was being sort of facetiously dismissive. I mean, this is the, when I was reading about you, it was just, are you kidding? But I asked the question because of my own ignorance. I had no idea. We had so, no idea either. So, I mean, you know, they also kudos this, to you. Thank you. They, they did a pilot program in, um, in Queens and put dispensers, free dispensers for uh, tampons and pads in the bathroom. Grade point averages went up for females and class attendance went up because they weren't I mean this is happening in our country that's the crazy thing mm. is like not that it's not happening other places but it's happening here and in our city and in our state and so we have girls staying home mothers figuring out am I gonna put this money towards our food or am I gonna spend twelve dollars on these you know tampons Products. and pads? yeah mm-hmm. so anyway that in a nutshell is racket well that's pretty freaking fabulous. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to say goodbye, but I'm going to put this in your court. Yes. This ball in your court. Mm -hmm. Which one of your songs from 77th Street would you like to end this conversation with? I actually think the the titular song, 77th Street, Mm -hmm. might be a great, a a great number. It's a, it's a bit of a jam, it's a bit of a 90s jam. Okay. And I, I love it. And so it's uplifting and it's... It's, up, well, it's uplifting. It's, um, it's letting out a little rage. Okay. It, feel, it felt very liberating for me to, to express a little bit. Well, that's perfect. Then that's Great. perfect. So, Margot Seibert, thanks so much for joining Thank me today. Thank you so much. This was lovely. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. And now sit back and enjoy the title tune from her first and hopefully will be the first of many <laughs> CDs, 77th Street. Sweat on my chest where you linger The temperature rise Only you come to mind A working man's hands bringing out my hair
You make me believe you ache as I do. 